When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, a bit of a history lesson. Uh, Harold Wilson, described by, as the winner in a new book about the former Prime Minister by the current Labour frontbencher, Nick Thomas-Simmons. He joins me, really interesting chat about what, what it was that Howard Wilson had that made him so successful and lessons for Keir Starmer too. So that's coming up in just a moment. First though, as ever, on a Tuesday, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Finkelvich and it's a very special one because it's Danny Finkelstein's birthday. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. <laughs> The Janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. We say a very good morning to Daniel Finkelstein. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Matt. Uh, uh, And a very happy birthday to Daniel Finkelstein. 60 today. Happy birthday, Danny. Thank you. It's very kind of you. <laughs> and uh, good morning to David Ivanovich. Morning, David. Good morning and happy birthday, Danny. Uh, now, if you had both been in the studio, David was fully prepared to jump out of a cake, but um, you're not, so that's not happening. We, we, the the six-foot cake we'd had built is now being I have, dismantled. I have been at a birthday party where someone jumped out of a cake. Of course you have. Michael, Michael Ashcroft had a birthday party in which... Um, Cliff Richard sang congratulations while uh, Denise Van Outen jumped out of the cake. <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> Have you ever been at a party where someone's jumped out of a cake, David? Uh, no, I, I, I don't. I don't mix in the same circles as Danny. Clearly, um, <laughs> and therefore my kind of my my exposure to billionaires has been pretty kind of minimal. Well, if, um, if you've if you've ever, if you've ever no... burst out of a cake, do get in touch in the usual ways. Eight seven double two. Start a message with the word times, etc. etc. Um, uh, well, let's <laughs> a fact that as it as we are talking about your birthday, Danny. Let's uh, let's talk about you. You suggested talk about your earliest political memory. So let's let's wind the clock back. What is your your earliest political memory? So my earliest, I just thought it would be quite interesting, to sort of, yeah. uh, just sort of think about ages. Uh, uh, my earliest political memory is Robert Kennedy's assassination in June of nineteen sixty eight. So I was five. This is quite a geeky political memory. No, that's quite a geeky. I do remember? I do remember being eleven, and my French teacher saying that Giscard d'Estaing had been elected 
president of France, and he used to be France's defence minister. And I put my hand up and said, uh, I think he was France's <coughs> finance minister, sir. Um, <laughs> you, you thought he was happy with that answer, but he, he wasn't actually very impressed. <laughs> so um, you're a little bit older, David. So what's your uh, what's your earliest political memory? Well, I think I think it must be my dad and I were walking down Downing Street. And don't ask me why. And my dad suddenly turned around and said, the Prime Minister lives there. And I said, and who's that? And he said, Harold Macmillan. And that's all I remember. But, I mean, of that particular incident. But I do remember that's it. That's quite I, a I good do. story, I, though. I, 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 <laughs> and the other one is, when my dad um, got the new Communist Party van, which was a black van with a large, loud hailer on the top of it, which was uh, uh, so that we he could do slogans from it. And somebody put some placards on the side of it. And I can't remember what the placards were, but I think that counts as a political memory. That's a sound like, I was yeah, very, yeah. I was very excited by that car. <laughs> I think that definitely counts as a political memory. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm I, uh, slightly younger. My, I, my sort of earliest political memories are probably... The tally in the kitchen being on for the budget and my parents following it very closely, particularly what was happening to booze and fags. That was the sort of... So I was trying to work out who it would have... Who it probably... It's probably I mean, Nigel oh, Lawson. Nigel Lawson, probably. I when think, were you born, Matt? 82. I mean, for, for benefit of anyone who wants to get in touch, it's my 40th birthday. Nigel Lawson, it is. Yeah, probably Nigel Lawson. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, so that, that was definitely a memory. And then and then sort of... Thatcher, I definitely remember the sort of the hoo-ha over Thatcher... Thatcher leaving um, Downing Street. Well, it was 100% Nigel Lawson. If yeah. you already remember Thatcher leaving and you remember the budget yeah. before yeah. and you were born in 82, then it would have been him. Yeah, uh, him. So there we are. There we are. That dates us all. That dates us all. D you, pair, you pair of young things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very, I really did this item in order that somebody would say that, really. When you're on the day that you're 60, you need someone yeah. to say that. You, need, you just well, need probably... David to come yeah. along and say, oh, you, you young whippersnapper, Danny. Well, I was just thinking, Danny has to, you know, he's not got long to wait before his hair goes as grey as mine. <laughs> well, but I'd be lucky with my hair, because the thing is, you've got a full head of yours. My hair won't go grey, it's just sort of falling out. That was exactly the compliment <laughs> I was wishing for. Yeah, it's, yeah, well, it's, yeah. it's not so much grey as transparent in Danny's case. Um, uh, let's do do share your uh, your earliest political memories. Thanks for trouble to start with the word times and all the usual ones. Um, in terms of uh, politics happening right now, Liz Truss being a no show, uh, is it understandable? Yeah, you know, she's pulled out of the BBC uh, interview that was planned for tonight. I mean, she's she's not been on Times Radio at all, which she soon that was on uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's done far more, but then I suppose he had uh, less to lose. Is it does it matter at this stage, uh, Danny? The, well, the, she, she could be Prime Minister literally in a week's time. It doesn't so appear very, to want to appear I'm in front of the cameras. In, in the duality of this. So first of all, obviously it is in the electorate's interest uh, and in the interests of democracy that she should appear <clears> on this programme. And I disapprove strongly of the fact that she's not doing that. Uh, but, I'd all, but I also note that this disapproval or indeed any concern about it at all isn't that widely shared and uh, it won't do any political damage whatsoever. I think the calculation that it will do a less political damage not to appear on it than to appear on it and do badly is probably correct. When I'm advising politicians or when I have been advising politicians in the past, my advice is always to start by doing the right thing, uh, start by saying the right thing. Uh, you can you'll never be ashamed of doing that. Uh, and. Um, the truth is, if you advised her to do the right thing in these circumstances, you might be giving her 
poor strategic political electoral advice. And that, I think, is something that all journalists have to think about. So, um, you know, if you look at 50 or 60 years ago, the beginnings of these sorts of interviews, there were um, they were clearly almost comically respectful. But it is also the case uh, that um, doing an interview now, um, you, you, you can understand why a politician doesn't want to do it. Uh, even though I think they should do it, that is not actually um, a consideration for them. Uh, so what I think we as journalists have to consider is uh, what is actually in it for the person that we are inviting. I think one of the concepts behind Times Radio was that you can get a lot out of people um, whilst they still get an opportunity to put their own point as well. Uh, and therefore, you can get um, a better guest and uh, probably more out of it for both the uh, viewers and the people who are uh, appearing. But I'm, I, I only put it because I think it's quite an interesting dilemma and I wanted to know what David thought. Yeah, I mean, in general, if it's a toss-up between what's in Liz Truss's interests and what's in the electorate's interest, I kind of tend to come down on, on the side of the electorate. Um, uh, and so consequently, my view is that she should have done it and she should have made the statement, um, both to her advisors and to the country, <clears throat> uh, by doing it, by saying, no, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be held accountable, though I don't doubt that Danny is mostly right when he says that a large proportion of the electorate wouldn't have taken any notice. Although I do wonder whether aspects of this don't kind of bleed through if you've already got a bit of a reputation as not a great performer or something like that. But then I haven't actually peered too deeply into the polls about what the public currently thinks about Liz Truss, if indeed they think anything about her. Um, but the uh, but Matt, you are you, you're a great enthusiast for those kind of uh, political interviews, particularly the Sunday lunchtime program, because you did a whole uh, series yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's always been a lot more difficult than people imagine to get politicians to agree to appear on them as a matter of being accountable. They simply do not see that being on these interviews on these programs is a matter of accountability in the way that some of us journalists do and some other people do. They see it be as purely being a matter of whether it's the most effective way of getting your message across, getting yourself out of difficulty or becoming elected. And it is as functional as that and frankly has not really been that different over the years. And all the times I was working at Weekend World, for example, I don't think I found that many uh, interviewees, political interviewees, who thought I'm going to go on this because it's really important that i show my face to the electorate as a matter of principle i don't think i ever saw that <laughs> yeah i would add that of course the problem with weekend world was it was on a weekend so a lot of for a lot of politicians sunday is one of the few days that they try and put by and say well that is going to be for my family um and it's difficult then if there are interviews and they have to travel into town and do them and so that's an additional feature of weekend interviews but um you know the the, the, the point the problem is you say um and i completely very strongly agree with you that liz trust holds holding herself as accountable is in the interests of the electorate um, and uh, therefore you and I think she should do it. <laughs> but the, the question she's considering is, is it in my interests? Yeah. And, um, and one of the things that we have to consider when we're considering how to attract people to come onto these programmes and then be held to account is what is in it for her. And um, the reason we have to think that is otherwise she won't do it. And it would be fine if the electorate then said, uh, if you won't do it, that's a disgrace. The truth is, the electorate <laughs> asked them, the electorate might think that, but most people are not that interested in you know the schedule of a television yeah. program that doesn't happen. So my view is that we have to think as journalists, how are we going to 
ensure that the, these people find it in their interests as well as the electorates to appear on these programs and you may say well that's not the right question well then the answer then this trust will reach our own answer but but but, but, but there are only two but there are only two ways of doing that or two things way ways of convincing uh people politicians that they should do it the first is that maybe the these this law you've adumbrated will change and that actually the electorate will think very badly of them if they don't so that would constitute a reason for doing it the other way is to tell them yes it's very much in your interest because x y and z will happen and therefore and i'm sort of rather cherry about that because that creates a kind of coziness between uh what we're supposed to be doing and what they're supposed to be doing which is rather problematic and so i don't actually have an answer to this um oh, overall it's, it's, other other than for us to stress the accountability question in the same kind of way, fiction, semi-fictional way, that we've tended sometimes to talk about manifestos, though neither you or I are great f fans of manifestos. i tell you the answer to it. The answer is to um, assign more prominence to the appearances in Parliament, which are compulsory. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons we have a parliamentary democracy is that, uh, rather than a presidential one, is that such a, appearances in Parliament and the holding being held to account is compulsory. And John Burke, I think, actually, you know, among the good things that he did was to extend a period of time that uh, a prime minister might be asked, for example, about their appearance at a summit so that they could be questioned by MPs. You might uh, consider in the House of Commons whether members of Parliament might be able to add follow-up questions, because beyond the, the the opposition leaders, MPs aren't always able to do that, and therefore you don't get a high standard of inquiry. But one of the answers to this is simply to accord you know, more media attention, uh, newspaper attention, for example, um, to uh, and uh, other media attention to proceedings in Parliament, because the appearances there are compulsory. And I suppose the thing, the, 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 you're right, the calculation that Liz Truss is making right now is that the downside of mucking up or is greater than the current downside of being seen to go AWOL. But that, that, that might change. And I was, I was quite struck, actually, on Friday, the reaction to the fact that we didn't see her at all on the, well, on the day that we found out about the uh, energy bills. You know, Boris Johnson appeared, Nadim Zahawi appeared, Rishi Sunak appeared. And you just think if her solution, if her, her instinct, whenever there's anything like that comes along, is to go AWOL, you know, is, is that just because she's sitting tight during a le leadership contest or is that her instinct full stop? I think it probably is. Look, she has a particular weakness with these interviews, definitely. I, I, I remember that years and years ago when Liz Truss had just been elected as a backbench MP, and I've always, you know, I've always quite liked her as a person. I think she's actually quite an intelligent individual and, you know, by all accounts was quite good as a minister. Uh, but I appeared immediately after on some, you know, regional radio programme. We were at a party conference in a sort of funny hotel room. And uh, she was on before me and she got herself into all sorts of trouble by an uh, uh, you know her answer and I thought to myself my goodness if you become a prominent politician you're going to be you're going to get yourself into real trouble with these views and but you know she shrewdly uh on a very crude political level understands that uh and but it uh, you know by the way obviously I think the Conservative Party members ought to take that into consideration mm. in making own vote and it was part of my consideration in in determining that I'd vote for Rishi Sunak but I understand why she's made the decision she's made and speaking as a journalist, as well as, you know, a sort of political operator, we have to think, well, what is the best way of trying to ensure that we can answer the questions we want and hold people to account? There's no point having a kind of fantasy view of what she ought to do if politically the calculation is what? she doesn't need to. 
Uh, except, 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 and uh, I don't want to repeat what I said to, uh, earlier too much, insofar as you create a little bit of weather in the electorate mm -hmm. about the nature of accountability, and you might be able yeah. to create a bit, I think it is actually quite important that where somebody like this trust has agreed in advance that she was going to do something and her, the other candidate agreed to do it, possibly partially on that condition as well, I think it's important to point out when she doesn't keep that promise. I think it is totally wrong that she didn't do it and i'm all for amplifying the fact that she's refused to do this and urging conservative members or voters to take this into consideration in making their decision it's it's rightly part of their decision i'm just not that sanguine about my chance of persuading very <laughs> to share that concern even even if for instance there was a big amount of pressure during, on boris johnson during the last general election to appear on the andrew mm -hmm. neil uh, program Dominic Cummings explained why he didn't do it, and that calculation is a crucial yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, give, well, given my story earlier about my dad's loudspeaker van, you can see why it is I am never sanguine <laughs> about my capacity to persuade people of things. Um, let's talk about uh, for a few minutes the, the inner workings of the BBC and Emily Maitlis last week, uh, using a speech to claim that Bobby Gibb. Uh, was an active agent of the Tory party who interfered with ed editorial matters. Um, what's your take on this, uh, David? How concerned should we be about uh, the, the the way the BBC is being run? Okay. OK, let me declare an interest, firstly, which is that I do a weekly BB pro programme for Radio 4, so I am not as disinterested, passive, possibly, as I need to be. But on the other hand, I'm remarkably well-informed uh, about, uh, about all this. Um there's been an incredible response to Emily Maitlis one way or another. It is fairly clear to me that Robbie Gibb did intervene in the matter of whether or not Jess Brammer, a woman called Jess Brammer, should be given a senior post at the BBC by attempting to suggest to the one of the people making the decision that this would be a bad political move. I think that was the, absolutely wrong and it's problematic. And insofar as that's what Emily Maitlis was pointing at, I think she's right. I think she has a point about what happened during the Brexit referendum, which was a really difficult thing for the BBC to call, because, frankly, the notion of balance under those circumstances was um, was pro was difficult. We needed better expert guidance, frankly, on what the consequences were likely to be than a one versus one was likely to give us. I think she's got a point there. Um, there are things where I'm less confident about her position, and I certainly am very unhappy about this becoming some kind of gigantic dichotomy between people who think that the BBC is under the Tory tutelage. By the way, I spend an awful lot of my time uh, dealing with either right-wingers who think that the BBC is left-wing, and there are a lot of those, <laughs> uh, and left-wingers who think that the BBC is very right-wing, and there are a lot of those. I'm not saying that they're both wrong because... Uh, they're opposed to each other. I'm just saying it would be quite nice if they would sort it out between the two of them <laughs> first, come to a decision and tell us which it is, and then we can respond. Danny? Well, I, I think the idea that the BBC is sort of Brexit boosting corporation is absolutely preposterous. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine how anyone would get the, uh, that such an idea in their heads. Um, it's quite... Uh, I, I did think Emily Maitlis's lecture, which was really about the, the problems that populism poses for journalism was and for the bbc was 
you know, particularly when groups of politicians say things that are flatly untrue. And uh, you can give an American example of Dom, of Dom, of uh, Donald Trump saying that the election was stolen, or a British example party arguing that Dominic Cummings had not broken the rules uh, on COVID when he clearly and flatly had. Uh, and what do you do in those circumstances? You can't have a balance between truth mm. uh, and lack of truth, or between sense and nonsense. And I think that that was, her lecture was very good in that respect. When it when it attempted to suggest that um or, or imply that the bbc had sort of become uh you know was suborned by the conservatives and frightened of the government i just don't think that its output yeah. justified that and indeed i think the biggest problem for uh, a broadcasting corporation is as the as the future in this country is increasingly politically between people who have degrees and people who do not that is a very big part of it then you have to ask yourself the question how does the bbc quote get qualified people but also a balanced group Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Nick Thomas Simmons about what made Harold Wilson a winner. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, a cabinet minister by the age of 31, prime minister at the age of 48, the only post-war PM to win four elections and the only one to have two separate spells in Downing Street. Is the prime minister who captured the age of the swinging 60s and conservative Harold Macmillan looked and sounded like a relic from the 50s. Harold Wilson was the politician who embraced the decade of the Beatles. If you want to see Britain moving ahead and getting ahead, if you want to sweep away outmoded ideas, the old boy network that has condemned so many of our ablest young people to frustration, if you want to see that at every level of our national life, talent and ability are recognised and given their head, then you will feel with us the sense of challenge and of excitement and adventure. For if the past belongs to the Tories, 
The future belongs to us, all of us. Isn't the choice that we're making this? That we want the children for whom all of us are voting to look back and to say that these were the great days. This was the moment when the people of Britain said, enough is enough. When they decided to take their future and the future of our country into their own hands. This is what we shall be voting about on Thursday. Yeah, and Howard Wilson won on that Thursday in 1964, thanks in part to party political broadcasts like that one. He then won a landslide and a slap election in 1966, thrown out of office in 1970, but he staged a comeback, winning two elections in February 74 and then again in October that year. No wonder a new book about Howard Wilson is called The Winner and its author, Labour MP and Shadow International Trade Secretary, Nick Thomas Simmons, joins me in the studio. Morning, Nick. Nice Morning. to see you. Um, why Howard Wilson? That's my first question, because there were several other books about Howard Wilson. So what was it that you wanted to get across, explore, examine, discover about Howard Wilson that we perhaps didn't know before? Well, I think I'm firstly interested in Howard Wilson, as the subtitle suggests, because he won general elections. And since Clem Attlee lost power in 1951, only two Labour leaders so far have actually won general elections, Howard Wilson and Tony Blair. And no Labour leader has won as many times as Harold did. So he's fascinating in that respect. But the reason I think this is the moment uh, for this book is because there were two previous biographies of Harold written in the early 1990s by Ben Pimlott and Philip Ziegler. And perfectly fine books they were, but they were written on the information of the time. So what we have now, we have the government record at the National Archive oh, course, now yeah, that have been yeah. released. We have an unpublished autobiography that Harold literally handwrote that I've been able to use for the biography. We've got documents in the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library in the United States that weren't released until the late 1990s. So a lot of new material. But also, we are in yet another period of lengthy Labour opposition. Uh, so winning a general election is, I think, for Labour once again something we need to be seriously considering. And what did you find? Take me through the process. I'm always sort of fascinated about the process of putting together a biography where the, the, the subject is not still alive and lots of the people, you know, in and around the time. But then you, what did you find in those records and things that you excited you or were new things about Harold Wilson? What you found in the records in particular were a lot of the, the private notes that Harold wrote that weren't necessarily made public. And just, just to give you... An example, the, the 1975 referendum on Romania in what was then the common market. And often it said, well, Harold took a bit of a, a bit of a back seat in that. But actually that, that And that's because he basically let his cabinet split, but in the same way that David Cameron in did. In the same way David Cameron did, he allowed suspension of collective yes, responsibility. Rose above it, yes. which basically meant the cabinet was split down the middle almost. Yeah. Y yes. And but what he did is you look at Every leaflet that went through a door, it's got Harold's name, Harold's face on it, Harold's renegotiation. But also you get to see in the records that the private letters that he was writing. So there was a, a press conference where Roy Jenkins, who was very much on the side of staying in the common market, uh, making quite critical comments at a press conference about Tony Benn, who was on the other side for coming out. And you get the a private letter from Harold almost immediately saying, will you please stop doing this because... Uh, you are making it more difficult for me to demote Ben after the referendum by behaving in this way. And you see lots of these notes. And what you get the impression of with Harold is, Harold is always somebody 
who is in control, far more strategic than the short-term view of him might suggest. It's interesting. The point you make there is that these days, presumably all that's happening in WhatsApp and text messages and all that, but the fact that it had to be written down and it all goes in the archive and then you can unearth it. You get a sense of what was going going through his mind. Clearly, you were talking about the books that came out previously in the nineties. You know, in the run up to what was then, you know, Tony Blair and and winning in ninety seven. And there were lots of lots of parallels. And sometimes these things could be overegged. But of course, both Howard Wilson and Tony Blair were the leaders that shouldn't have been the yes. leaders. Their predecessors, Hugh Gates, Skill in the case of Howard Wilson, uh, John Smith in the case of Tony Blair, died. And that the sort of the predecessor had done a lot of work, arguably, to get the party closer to power. And they sort of came and and, you know, put rocket boosters under it. They're both completely accidental leaders, uh, both because of quite sudden and shocking deaths of their uh, predecessors. In the case of Harold Wilson, the very sudden and tragic death of Hugh Gateskill, which opened up a leadership contest, which in other circumstances wouldn't have happened. There was no suggestion that Hugh Gateskill would have been challenged before the next general Mm. election. It was purely that that made it uh, possible. But the other thing that it did in both cases was it brought them in as leaders where the Conservatives had already been in power for a substantial period of time. So Harold Wilson comes becomes Labour leader in February 1963. The Conservatives have been in power since 1951. Uh, Macmillan is still the Prime Minister at that stage, but ailing, problem, huge problems, running out of steam. So often timing is everything as well. Do you think it makes a difference, rather than becoming a leader off the back of a defeat or a challenge, it's sort of, as a new leader, to to replace a popular, successful leader of the opposition who died, you actually put you in quite a strong place. It's not trying to pick up the pieces after a crushing election defeat or a... Is there something about those circumstances, do you think? And then actually you have a mandate. It's a sort of positive thing, rather than a, I'm the person best placed to clear up this mess type thing? It can be. And I think we, we can also see in those circumstances, there's there's no allegation that somehow the new leader was plotting exactly, the previous sort of mean, yeah, one yeah, down. The, the that, sort of fresher and less there. tainted, yeah. It's not there. It's, it's a leadership contest that's happened by pure accident and not by design. And clearly that does have, have an impact. And Harold... Uh, comes into power at that moment in February 1963. And many, you have to remember, he he very wisely included many Gateskillites in his shadow cabinet because they were, not only did he see that in terms of party unity, but there were many people who'd been extraordinarily close to Hugh Gateskill who frankly were still in a a real sense of shock and grief. It's interesting the the comparison you make to uh, Macmillan. And uh, I remember interviewing Michael Cockrell a few months ago and he was making this point that that Wilson, Macmillan really struggled with TV, uh, you know, which is the sort of the coming media, if you like. And Wilson really embraced it. You know, we could hear on the TV, on the party political broadcast, you know, his ability to connect down the sort of the camera lens and really look like he was connecting with you. His ability to turn a phrase, and so many of the phrases that he had, we still, mm-hmm. you stay, let's take a listen. This was, this was uh, Howard Wilson uh, talking about being a big believer in technology and change. In terms of the scientific revolution, But that revolution cannot become a reality unless we are prepared to make far-reaching changes in economic and social attitudes which permeate our whole system of society. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution will be no place for restrictive practices or for outdated methods on either side of industry. 
forged in the white heat, but that gets, still gets used all the time. Yes. Now, often, but I think some people don't even know where it's sort of come from. It's so part of the of the of the lexicon. Um, and then there was also, you know, the pipe, the famous pipe. Mm. Even though he smoked cigars in public, but he knew the pipe was a was a, a, a more appealing image in public. Yeah. Was, he, was it all? Was it sort of? We think of sort of Tony Blair being the most cynical, spin obsessed pirate or ever. Was Wilson the forerunner of that? Do you think? I think that he's actually more authentic, perhaps, than that suggests. But the one thing that I think is fascinating about Harold Wilson is his adaptability, because yeah. you've just played that, that wonderful clip there, that brilliant White Heat of Technology speech from 1963. But there are also clips of him when he was the president of the Board of Trade between 1947 and 1951. And if you look at those clips uh, on the old British path, there, yeah. he's very, very stiff to look yeah. at, very it's formal, a has person. a tiny moustache. Yeah. Still very academic, hasn't quite developed that popular touch. But he was adaptable and he did develop that popular uh, touch. I think it was Gerald Kaufman who said about him that he almost developed a sense of humour. Yeah, because so he, he, knew, he knew there was an advantage to that. Yes, so ab he, absolutely. Yeah. And that uh, mastery of the television, he employed a very young television producer called Tony Benn, who trained him to as to what you needed to do to be effective on television. Yeah. Of course, one of the things is the quick soundbite. And how many different soundbites, you know, do we remember of things that Harold Wilson said? You know, a week is a long time in politics, uh, he said. You know, uh, commission, you know the, the royal commissions that uh, governments want to set up, they take minutes and they waste years. You know, there's so many different things that he said because he always knew that that memorable phrase yeah. was something that would really assist you in politics. I don't know over it, but of course Tony Blair then hired Peter Mandelson, a young TV <laughs> producer, who did exactly the same thing for him. And so much of the book, and it's you know, it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a great read. It's sort of you know, there's lots of colour in it. You feel like you can um, uh, really connect with all the people in it. But so much of the book is occupied with talk of inflation, industrial unrest, strikes, prices, yes. jobs. Um, uh, are we wrong to keep seeing the parallels today with the 1970s? It feels like, you know, we'll talk a bit about the, the letters of Keir Starmer, but the sort of the backdrop of of what we're living through today is is sort of what he was grappling with 50, 60 years ago. Well, clearly, clearly the world and the countries change, but the the dilemma that inflation presents to government is not so different yeah. from how it's presented itself to other governments in the past. And Harold, I mean, the one thing that has changed is, of course, the balance of payments in Wilson's day was the great thing by which an economy was measured. Quite frankly, and I, I say this too as uh, with my international trade hat on, that strong exports was seen as, a, as really incredibly important, still are incredibly yeah. important and should be today. But that balance of payment statistic, which was a monthly statistic in those days, really was looked and at. And that that's exports versus imports. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and remember as well that we were still in a very different system of currency at this time, that the sort of Bretton Woods system where the dollar is the central currency, it's pegged yeah. to the value of gold. So you have this, this constant attack on the currency and the value of the currency, which is something that runs right through, particularly Wilson's first government. And do you think, given given his, his because he was off and on Prime Minister over such a long period, and clearly he, he stepped down rather than lose an mm. election, but does he bear responsibility for, for having not dealt with some of those big structural economic things, which actually did then herald 18 years of Tory rule, began, you know, beginning with Margaret Thatcher and John Major later, that not dealing with trade unions, not getting on top of inflation, uh, and actually, as the party of the trade union movement, actually, you know, did did 
usher in a period of markets that is actually pretty hardcore uh, dealing with the trade unions. The thing about this, though, is that I think we're so influenced still by the winter of 1978 and 79. Yeah. Because if you look at, uh, I mean, Jim Callahan might, might have won an election if he called in October 1978, and history might be very different. But if you look at Harold Wilson uh, and the problem of inflation in the mid-70s, you get the Yom Kippur War, you get OPEC quadrupling the, the value of a barrel of oil yeah. overnight. So you get this huge inflation that goes into the economy and everything that goes with it. But if you look at 1975, Harold had started to get inflation under control. August 75, we talk about it this difficult period, Harold was still ahead in the polls in August 1975. And I think we tend to judge him with the hindsight, we tend to judge him. It's almost like a history one by the written by yeah, the victor's yeah, yeah. situation because of we know what happened in the 1980s. But of course, he didn't know in 1975, 76. That's where it was going, yeah, yeah. Um, but if you look at the, the various things that he tried to do, the very interventionist approach to try and bring about solutions to strikes, or indeed the social contract, which provides not just the method by which he wanted to manage industrial relations in the 70s, but things that have stood the test of time, things like the health and safety at work, Act, which is Harold Wilson, things like the Employment Protection Act, which brought in maternity leave for the first time. You know, ACAS, the conciliation body in employment law today, still here. That's Harold Wilson yeah, again yeah. in the mid-70s. So some pretty far-reaching reforms as well. And on, the, on that, on the sort of the, on the social side, there were lots of things about equality legislation, decriminalisation of homosexuality, uh, the abolition of capital punishment, race relations acts. Some have argued that actually he was all tactics and no strategy. And that actually, and actually some of those things were things that were other people's idea. He was the one who sort of picked them up and ran them. I mean, you're clearly a fan of his. So you, I suspect you'll say that actually, that's, you know, it's all credit to him that that happened. Where, I mean, always it just timing that, that things happened and he was the one who was there to, to implement it? Well, the, the thing is, when things go wrong in government, prime ministers carry the can, yeah. right? Quite rightly, because that's where the buck starts. Yeah. But when things go right, we have to look at the Prime Minister of the time yeah. as well. You're allowed to take the credit for the good stuff. But, but, it's, but it's also about, I think, recognising with these things. Wilson himself was a social conservative. He had this great congregationalist background. Mm. Uh, but he did think the changes were necessary. They came about, he is the one who appointed Roy Jenkins to be Home Secretary in December 1965, knew he had a liberal reforming agenda. Things did come about, like, for example, the Abortion Act is uh, David Steele. The decriminalisation of homosexuality is, is Leo Absey. They did come about through, uh, through backbenchers, Sidney Silverman in terms yeah. of the death penalty. But in that period from 1964 to late 1967, the three dominant figures in that government were James Callaghan, George Brown and Harold Wilson. Both Callaghan and Brown had very serious doubts as to why the government was giving time to things that they didn't think yeah. were the responsibility of government. If Harold had wanted to put a stop to all of it, he could have done it very easily. It was his decision not to do that that actually meant that the reforms Those took things place. happened. Um, we need to talk about Marcia Williams because people can't think of Howard Wilson without thinking about Marcia Williams. Um, it, it, put it into context. I mean, I was sort of, when I was reading, I was thinking, it's sort of a Dominic Cummings character. Sort of, it's, it's more than Alistair Cowell. It wasn't just spin. It was, no. he, it was everything that she was involved in in his, in his uh, political life. Yes, yeah, she, she's, a, she's a remarkable figure. And I, I argue in the book that before Margaret Thatcher, she probably came closer to the centre of power in number 10 than any other woman, yeah. in my view. Uh, I think that she, she there were certain things she, she gave Harold, I think, were absolutely vital to him and what he was. And I think the first was the adaptability 
Matt, that we've yeah. discussed previously, who was the person above all that helped him transform from that very formal academic president of the Board of Trade to the person with the popular touch in the early 60s? Yeah. It was Marcia Williams. It was Marcia Williams, the one person he could give her a speech, she'd write rubbish across it. <laughs> and she used to say to him, if I can't understand it, Harold, the public can't understand it, you need to completely rewrite it so people can understand it. She, so she was a big... The second thing she did is, you know, the total politics can be a very lonely place. And what she did was support him with 100% loyalty, even to the extent that when he left in 1976, she, she went with him. Yeah. You know, she stayed, you, you would still find... I mean, people... I interviewed uh, John Tomlinson, who's in the House of Lords, who was Harold's PPS. And he remembered ringing up, I think it was one of the European election campaigns in the 80s, to ring Harold's office, see if Harold would come and campaign for him. Marcia answered the phone. Yeah. She's still there, still loyal. Yeah. Um, and those two things, I think, that she gave gives him a, a vital to understanding him. But her presence there caused incredible tensions. There's the, the, yes. the most amazing story involving Howard Wilson's doctor, Joe yes. Stone. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the 1970s government, and I interviewed other members of his inner circle, including, yeah. I was delighted to interview Joe Haynes Joe many Haynes, times, yeah, who yeah. was his press secretary. Uh, and the 1970s stories of the the instability, if you like, around Marcy Williams are quite remarkable to the extent that it appears not entirely as a joke that Dr. Stone had suggested she might be, in inverted commas, put down because of the pressure that, that was being brought to Brown Howell. Now, you, you can take that story as you wish, one way or another, but that the story is, I think, even told is indicative of the tensions that by then existed. And it's amazing, because the story that basically the idea of bumping her off has persisted and has come mm -hmm. from so many sources. The, it, the very fact it was even discussed is absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Still joined by uh, Nick Thomas-Simmons, uh, Labour MP and Shadow International Trade Secretary, discussing his book, The Winner. Uh, but uh, it's all about Howard Wilson, with a quote on the cover from Keir Starmer. Puts Howard Wilson in his rightful place, a fine work of history, it says. And Keir Starmer said that Howard Wilson is his favourite Prime Minister. Of, uh, uh, of all time. He's, do you think that's because of, uh, of the election victories or because he ran from the left and ended up betraying them afterwards? <laughs> well, the, the, the number of Labour leaders who've been accused of being betrayers is probably more than <laughs> I, can, I can count. But uh, I, I think that Harold is somebody, when we talk about the winner, clearly he is an electoral winner and that's just incontestable. I mean, look at the post-1945. Yeah. There's not a leader of either party who's won four times. It's a remarkable thing to do. But that winning was not simply about elections. It was about doing things and achieving things. If he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have kept winning. And I think it's that sense of power for a purpose that, that Harold really does yeah. embody. And we, we've discussed some of the changes that that he made Matt but it's an extensive list that he's bequeathed to us today that still affect our society today uh, reading it one thing that leapt out in terms of you know if Keir Starmer was reading this um you were you're talking here about his uh his instincts and and what he wanted particularly in his speeches this is Howard Wilson speaking remember that I don't want too many of those guardianisms <laughs> environmentalism generalism genderism, etc. I want my speeches always to include what working people are concerned with. Jobs, pay, prices, <laughs> pensions, homes, kids, schools, health. You included that as a little note to your, your leader. Less, <laughs> less guardianisms and more of the stuff that people care about. Well, it, what Harold is talking about there, that's something he said to his um, the person who became head of his, um, his policy unit, Bernard Donoghue, yeah. in 1974. And what Harold is, is saying there is a, it's, pretty, it's pretty common sense, really. He's, he's saying talk about 
the bread and butter issues. And if you think about today, the the issue that dominates all other, quite rightly, is the cost of living crisis. And it's coming up with practical things that make a difference. And that's precisely whether it's windfall tax, whether it's the energy price freeze, that's exactly what we've we've been trying to do. Do you think that looking at the the scale of the ambition of Howard Wilson before he gets into office and then what he achieved. Do you think that Keir Starmer needs to up his game a bit and sort of think a bit bigger? I mean, you talk about the energy uh, bills. You know, he's basically adopted a Lib Dem policy of freezing the the price cap. It's not, you know, uh, you don't get the sense of ambition that you get from reading this book. Well, the the price cap was originally Ed Miliband's idea, actually, rather than the Lib Dems. And I remember a lot of criticism at the time, but it seems to everybody accepts it now across our politics. But in terms of what's interesting about this is that you... We, we've played the excellent clip of the white teeth of technology. Yeah. And the one area where clearly technology is, technology is going to make a huge difference, whether you're talking about AI, many other things in our lives in the next 10, 15 years, even before that. But clearly in climate technology, that's going to be an absolutely huge thing. Yeah. And we've actually got a climate investment pledge, £28 billion each and every year. You talk about ambition, that is a pretty ambitious pledge that we have to transform. So what's society. lacking there? Is it is it the is it the fray? Is it the selling? Is it the... Climate investment pledge isn't as good as the white heat of technology. That's the is, is that the thing that Keir Starmer is lacking sometimes? Is the there's a lot of thinking that goes on, uh, but communicating that with the public doesn't always seem to quite land. But I think that is more to do with in opposition. You have to repeat things, repeat things, repeat things. Remember that there is a difference these days between the era that Harold in the, in the yeah. 70s... I mean, you, you think, for example, that there was once a situation when I was growing up, there were essentially four television channels, yeah. right? So if you had a political leader who went on to one of the four channels at peak time, you are speaking to millions of people, yeah. right? Now, I, I, I often join Times Radio on the what we call the morning media round. I think it's about 11 or 12 interviews yeah. in the mornings these days. So I think in opposition in particular, especially during the pandemic actually having to do that repetition i think it's, it's more difficult now to get that instant yeah. hit that it, they, and clearly that's what Harold did with the white heat of technology so do you think keir starmer's got what it takes to 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 be the winner i think keir starmer is going to be the third labor leader since 1951 to win a general election i think it's going to be harold wilson tony blair keir starmer in the in the 2020s uh and you know i've known Kia for, for many years, known Kia before. Obviously, he was the leader of the party. And I've always believed, that's why I backed him to be the leader, that he has what it takes to be Prime Minister. I think he will be. And uh, what does he need to do? You've got party conference coming up. What do you want What do you want to see from Keir Starmer? You know, new Prime Minister, may well get a, get a bit of a honeymoon bounce and all of that. What does he need to do with that, that party conference, do you think? Do we need to see some flesh on the bones a bit? Well, I think we, we're already seeing that. I mean, we are the ones who've put forward what we would be doing about the cost of living mm. crisis. And I think what we'll see from uh, Kia at the party conference is this, that he said in previous conference speeches that we had uh, a mountain to climb, and that's true. But I think we're going to be seeing more and more of, when you get to the top of the mountain, what you can actually see. And I think that's what we're going to get um, from Keir Starmer this autumn. And you're likely to have a new Tory opponent, Amory Trevelyan, your current uh, in, uh, opponent is International Trade Secretary. Who do, you, who do you think you'll get next? Are you, are you concerned about the new incoming government? Uh, I, I No, I mean, I, I'm worried more than concerned in terms of the, the paucity of the debate that we've had uh, over the summer. There seems to be a slightly unreal quality about the debate in comparison to what 
I'm seeing in my inbox and what I'm getting in my constituency every time I'm out talking to people and realising the pressures. And it seems we've got these two parallel realities going on of this debate between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, which doesn't seem to bear a great deal of resemblance to what's actually going on. Uh, who, who is who is my opponent? I've, I've shadowed many people over the years. I, I look forward to to yet another opponent. Each person that I've shadowed has uh, had their own strengths and weaknesses, and uh, I look forward to every day, whether Amory carries on or something else. <laughs> and do you, do you what do you make of Liz Truss not doing this interview tonight? In fact, not doing any interviews. Well, if she doesn't believe that her plan can survive thirty minutes with Nick Robinson, how on earth does she think it's going to actually survive when it hits reality? In the autumn, I find it quite astonishing. Well, we've invited on her as well. She's not uh, she's not taking up our offer either. Uh, Nick, it's lovely to see you. Uh, to see really, you. thank you so much for coming in. Harold Wilson, the winner, is out this week, and it's a great read. If you're interested, I mean, you know, if you're listening to this show, you know that we're interested in uh, in um, politics and history and stuff as well. But it's full of loads of great stories and colour and late nights and drink and shouting and all of that. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.